Before I get into my message, we're just going to take a moment to pray. Uh, each Wednesday evening, there's a group that meets online. Uh, anyone's welcome to join. Um, you can find the link um, behind me, or you can email elders at northerncollect.church, and we will give you the link, and you can join us in prayer. Thank you for those who do gather and pray. Pray for our church, pray for our city, pray for our world. So please bow your heads with me as we go to God. Heavenly Father, I'm deeply humbled that we can speak to you because of what your Son has done. We come with needs, we come with joys, we come with our lives. Father, would we hear from you as well as we read from the Bible, as we read from the book of Matthew, would it transform our minds and our hearts to follow after you, would it have practical application for our lives and our relationships. Whether single, married, divorced, widowed. Whether with a job or without a job. Whether in depression or in joy. Father, speak to us. Would you be God with us? And would we know that your presence is, is with us? Even when we don't feel it. Would we have faith that you are there and you've always been there? Pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. September last year, we started a journey through the Old Testament. And so it's been about seven, eight months now, and we're done the Old Testament. And we've blitzed through it. We've skipped some books, but we try to hit some major stories in the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, and asking, what does it say about God? And what does it say about us? And how are we to respond? What we need to know, more than anything, is what the Word of God says. It doesn't matter what social media says. It doesn't matter what the news say, or the politics or the politicians. We need to know what God says. We need to know what our Heavenly Father says. So we are deeply committed to the Word of God. What each of us needs to be a better husband is to be in the Word of God. To be a better spouse is to be in the Word of God. To be a better citizen is to be in the Word of God. That's why we want to go through this book in its entirety. As best as we can. Not skipping over the hard parts. Not skipping over the boring parts. But knowing that it is God's word for us. Our Heavenly Father who created us for Him. And so last week we looked at this book, Malachi. It's the last book of the Old Testament. And the last verse in Malachi, it ends with this curse and this judgment upon God's people. And the pattern of the Old Testament is God blesses his people. God continually blesses his people. Gives them gives them the universe. Gives them friends. Gives them joys and riches and everything. Yet they rebel. God blesses. God's people rebel. And it's this continual cycle. And they've forgotten God at this point. It seems like. They're rebelling against him. They don't want anything to do with him. So the last word of Malachi, it it, it ends with this curse. And you're wondering, is there going to be a solution? Is someone going to reverse this curse? Is it going to come tomorrow? Next week? Next year? Next ten years? There's a moment in what biblical scholars call 400, over 400 years of silence 
We don't hear any words from God through people who speak on his behalf. These are prophets. There's no books that are included in the Bible that are written during that time. Silence. 450 years. And what happened in this 450 years? The world continued to spin. The sun rose. People gave birth. People died. Empires fell. Empires rose. And that is indeed what happened. During Malachi's time, we had what was called the Persian Empire. And they ruled the world. And in those 450 years, we see the rise of the Roman Empire. Rome is now big cheese in the world. They're the biggest empire. The most powerful nation. 450 years later is the setting of Matthew. The Romans took over the Persian Empire. And there's a new language, Aramaic and Greek. Some people still speak Hebrew, but Rome is in charge. And so what we had in the Old Testament, you can think of the Bible this way. It's in two parts. The Old Testament, which some call the First Testament, and the New Testament, which some people call the Second Testament, Second Promise. In the Old Testament, it foreshadowed. It foreshadowed a coming king, a coming prince, a coming political ruler, a coming savior that would save the people from their plight, from their slavery, from themselves. And they're anticipating this king. They're anticipating the savior. That's what the Old Testament does. The Old Testament foreshadows. The New Testament fulfills. The Old Testament foreshadows and the New Testament fulfills. So everything that the Old Testament is foreshadowing, is predicting, is prophesying, the New Testament fulfills primarily in the person, in the work, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament foreshadows and the New Testament fulfills. The Old Testament ended with its curse. And a great deafening generation of, generations of silence. But the New Testament provides a solution to our greatest problem, which is our sin, our rebellion against God, our treason against a great and mighty king. And Jesus will reverse the curse. Now we meet the writer Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. He was excited as I am. I can feel it. Just stay buckled in. Matthew, the new, we're in the New Testament now. This great anticipation. And we meet this writer, Matthew. And Matthew, he's a tax collector. We're in tax season right now. The CRA has tele- collected our taxes. And some of us may have received money back. And so, Matthew's a tax collector. But when we think of the Canada Revenue Agency or the CRA... We don't think of them with spite, necessarily. Some of us might. But in the Bible, they would always refer tax collectors with sinners. They would accuse Jesus of eating with tax collectors and sinners. As if they were like the same thing. Sinners and tax collectors. So what's so bad about tax collectors? Tax collectors were greasy. Not physically, maybe. They're greasy. But they would cheat people because 
tax collectors could get a, a contract from the government. They could pay the government, the Roman government, and say, listen, I want to collect taxes this year or this season. So I'm going to pay for this contract, which gives them the right to go house to house and collect taxes, and anything over and above what the Roman Empire gets, they keep as profit. So they would lie to people. They would swindle people. They'd go up to houses and say, oh, you know, you owe this amount. They would lie to old women, to dying men, to the poor, just to get richer. Tax collectors don't have friends. Your tax collector people avoid you. That's what Matthew is. He was a tax collector. He's in his booth collecting taxes for the Roman Empire. People hate tax collectors. That's why it's tax collectors and sinners. They're wretched. They're rats. But Jesus, as he's teaching, he's teaching great crowds of people about this new kingdom, about this coming king, about this great prince of peace. He's teaching about himself. He's teaching about a new empire, an everlasting empire. And he sees Matthew. We can read about in chapter 9 in Matthew, verse 9. Jesus says two words to him as he's collecting taxes, writing down his payout. Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. And how does Matthew react? He thinks, oh, I don't know. I'm making a lot of money right now. I got a good, I got a big house. I'm about to go swindle some more people. What does he do? Immediately drops everything, follows after him. That was the same call to each of us. Jesus saying to you and me, follow me. Matthew, without question, he doesn't ask, where are you going? Who are you? Why would I follow you? What about this? What about that? I have a cat. I have a bunch of CDs. I can't just leave these things. There are no CDs during the Roman Empire. I don't know what, they, what kind of music they had. His, his lyre, his harp, maybe. Where are you going? He's Follow me. And he goes. And now Matthew follows Jesus and he records what he experienced as he followed Jesus. And Matthew starts with the genealogy. He starts with the family tree. He starts with the descendants of Jesus. Matthew 1, chapter 1, the first 18 verses. If you're a Christian, most of you think it's very boring genealogy, it's a list of names. To me, it's very exciting. And I hope that you can just get a bit of my excitement in this. And I hope that you appreciate genealogies just that much more after this. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and Abraham. I'm going to pause here. Big pause here. It's 25 verses here. This could be four hours. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and Abraham. Now, other translations, it says the genealogy. The genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, or Jesus the Christ. And genealogy in the Greek is the same word we get, Genesis which is the first book of the 
Bible, in the Old Testament. Now, the first book of the New Testament, it begins with the same thing. It was a new era, a new beginning, a new genesis, a dawn of a new time with Jesus. It begins with him. And during this time, the Jewish people, they kept extensive genealogies. They needed to do this because it dictated what kind of rights they had, what kind of land they had, and who they were. It was very important to have a genealogy. People would memorize their genealogies. People would memorize this portion of scripture. How many of us have this memorized? I don't. I'll be the first to admit. But they memorized genealogies. Because when people come, they say, who's your family? Where are you from? It established so much to have a genealogy. And so this this person, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's not like Jimmy Christ, Bobby Christ, Mommy Christ, Daddy Christ. It's a title. And back in the day, you would have... Your name would be, so Jesus is Yeshua or Joshua. That's where you get the name Joshua. And you say, Joshua, son of whoever your father is. And that's how they identify themselves. Jesus, the son of Joseph. Harrison, the son of Stephen. But we have last names here. Christ is a title. It's not a last name. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the one who will save the people. And back then, people took naming people very seriously. They wanted their son or daughter to be someone, they they would give them this name. God's mighty warrior. God's helper. That's how they would name people. People do that today, sentimental. They put a lot of thought into naming their children. I am not one of those people. I'm pretty sure in the kitchen, we just named Emerald, Emerald. Out of the blue. There was no real sentimentality in her name, but some, and especially in this culture, naming people is a very serious craft and is very important. And so it says, Jesus the Messiah is a descendant of David and Abraham. David and Abraham. David and Abraham are very important figures in the Bible. King David and a man named Abraham. Jesus is a direct descendant of these two. And God made a very specific promise to King David generations earlier. And could could Jesus be the fulfillment of this promise? Let's read. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 13. God promises King David that one of his descendants, one of his heirs, will have a kingdom that will have no end. A forever kingdom. This is what it says. Second Samuel chapter 7, 12 to 13. When your days are fulfilled, you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So we've seen the rise and fall of empires, the rise and fall of kings, and we see that today. Kings will rise, kings will fall, presidents will rise, prime ministers will rise and fall. But there's someone coming after you, King David. In your direct bloodline, in your direct genealogy, whose kingdom will have no end. It will be invincible. That's David. Now Abraham. 
Early in the Bible, God makes this promise. Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 to 3. God says to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make you your name great. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, highlight, underline this, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Through your genealogy, through your descendants, somehow, all the families of the world will be blessed. Who is this person? Who is this king? Who is the fulfillment of this? Let's continue in the genealogy, verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, not Salmon. Salmon. Whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Riveting stuff right there. Memorize that. Honestly. Honestly memorize that. Why? There's something very unusual happening here. Genealogies in this time, they usually trace men. Yet here, we read of four women. Why is that? It's a very unusual thing to, to trace women in a genealogy. You have Tamar, you have Rahab, you have Ruth, and you have Bathsheba. And who are these people? Why, why did Matthew include these women? Well, let's meet some of them. Tamar. Tamar, if you're not familiar with the Bible, she dressed up as a prostitute and her father-in-law slept with her, and she had children, who are Perez and Zerah. They're twins who are in this genealogy. You have Rahab. She was an actual prostitute. She didn't just dress up as one. And Tamar and Rahab were not of Jewish descendants. They were Canaanites. A race of people that the Jewish people were forbidden to marry. And you have Ruth. She was a Moabite woman. She's not Jewish. She's not an Israelite. In a place called Deuteronomy, the Moabites were excluded from gathering with Israel's people. The Israelites refused to give them food or drink. Sorry. The Moabites refused to give the Israelites food and drink when they left Egypt. These are the Moabites. And Bathsheba. Who's Bathsheba? Her story is tainted in controversy. If you could imagine this headline today. King David murders man, sleeps with his wife, impregnates her. That's Bathsheba. Her husband was Uriah, who was murdered by King David. King David's included in the genealogy. Uriah was a Hittite, who was not an Israelite. So this genealogy, it's, it's full of non-Jewish 
full of Gentile women. And these women, they were all outsiders. They were all outsiders. Some would look at this ancestry and think, wow. This genealogy is full of a bunch of sinners, a bunch of murderers, rapists, crooks, prostitutes. This is a tainted bloodline. It's impure. Why is the genealogy like this? Because it's to fulfill a promise that God made to Abraham. Genesis 12.3 again. God says to Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed through your descendants. All the families. Not just the Israelites. Everybody's included in that. You and me, that's why you should see a very diverse church. Not just of a single race, of a single people group. Everybody's included in the promise. And the genealogy is proving that. You have these people who have no business being with Israelites included in the genealogy, included in the Bible. Blood relatives of Jesus Christ. All families of the earth shall be blessed. His ancestry. Soul of a bunch of sinners. And in today's culture, we try to cancel people because your great-grandfather was a slave trader. So you're not worthy to do whatever. Look at Jesus. Cancel Jesus. Good luck. Bunch of sinners. And I don't just mean Tamar and Ruth and Rahab and Bathsheba. Abraham. He lied. Judah. He's He's the one who wanted to sell his brother into slavery. David is the one who killed Uriah and committed adultery. Solomon, he had multiple wives, constantly committing adultery. Hezekiah, he was always proud of being good. He had a bunch of evil kings. One Christian author said this, Jesus belonged to a family of murderers, cheats, cowards, adulterers, and liars. And the Jews back then would see this genealogy as so impure. It's racially impure. It's morally impure. It's just a disgusting bloodline. But Jesus is totally countercultural. He doesn't care what the current culture thinks. And he's come to save the world. Not just the Israelites, but the entire world. God's acceptance of sinful and marginalized and forgotten and rejected people. That's the king, King Jesus. He goes to the broken. He goes to the needy. He goes to the poverty stricken first. Not to those who are high and mighty. He comes to the least of these. He comes for the broken. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. This is a trustworthy saying. And everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus came to the world to save sinners like Matthew, the tax collector, like Rahab, the prostitute, sinners like you and me. This is the Savior. Let's finish Jesus' genealogy. Verse 7, Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah was the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Jehoram. Jehoram was the father of Uzziah. 
Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham was the father of Ahaz. Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Ammon. Ammon was the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of Jehoiakim and his brothers, born at a time of the exile to Babylon. After the Babylonian exile, Jehoiakim was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abiud. Abiud was the father of Eliakim. Eliakim was the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok was the father of Achim. Achim was the father of Eliud. Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar was the father of Mathen. Mathen was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who was called the Messiah. All those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. These lists were meant to be memorized. The Jews had a technique to help memorize these genealogies. You notice they're in three very distinct groups of 14. If you look at the name David, and the Jews had this practice called geometria. Geometria is the idea of taking the letters in your name, you remove the vowels in each letter corresponded to a number. And with David, if you take D, 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 it equals 14 in this geometria practice. David is 14. If you look through the genealogy, David is the 14th name on that list. They do that on purpose so that you would know the significance of the genealogy and that Jesus is the direct bloodline of David. And now we have the birth of Jesus from this genealogy, verse 18. This is how Jesus, the Messiah, was born. His mother, Mary, was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save the people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill, to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child, she will give birth to a son, and we'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. And he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born. And Joseph named him Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the prophecy that was written about him 650 years before his birth in a book called Isaiah. 650 years. It was prophesied that this child would come. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 it says, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. 
She will give birth to a son. We'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This book is not some random patch quilt book of random little stories of Winnie the Pooh, Darth Vader, SpongeBob SquarePants. It is a consistent line of God telling his story and what he's going to do. The Old Testament foreshadows, the New Testament fulfills. This should rock the mind of every atheist, every devout Jew, every Muslim, every Jehovah's Witness, that this is not an accident, that God is fully in charge here, and Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things. And we have this genealogy. And if I had 35 years, I'd go through every name of that genealogy and show how brilliant it is and how Matthew is showing the importance of every person in that name, in that list. But we're not going to go there. We're going to talk about the importance of the virgin conception. Why does this matter? The Catholics have it wrong where they build a shrine to Mary and they almost worship her. We do not worship Mary. Mary is not to be worshipped. She, in fact, worshipped Jesus. There's an important moment in history where she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Why is this important? It's important because God didn't just step down into heaven with this perfect bloodline and live amongst us. And someone would ask him, who are you? Well, I'm Jesus and I'm human. You think, no, you're not human. There's nothing human about you. You came down from heaven. Your genealogy is, well, you have none. You've eternally existed and you've come down and you're just God. That's a problem, and I'll explain why in a second. The second is, he didn't just have a normal birth with the normal things that are involved in birthing. Because if he was, he would just be human. And if he were to die, he would die just like you and I. There's a huge problem there. If he's just God, the payment for our sins cannot be paid by just God. You need a payment that is equal to the crime committed. You need somebody fully human. But the punishment and the crime is so great, it's an infinite crime against an infinite God, you also need that person to be totally God. You need to find someone, which does not exist, until we meet Jesus, who is fully God and fully human. Jesus is that person. The unique Virgin conception, and I say virgin conception because that is the miracle. Mary gave birth through ordinary means. That's, well, it is a miracle for different reasons, but the conception is what we focus on. That is a God moment. Only God can do something like that. Jesus is both fully God, fully human. And this is what Biblical theologians called the hypostatic union. And the hypostatic union is this 
hypostasis, this perfect union of Jesus being one. I've got to be careful when I say this. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is what we know as the Trinity. There's Father, the second person is the Son, who is fully God, comes, comes to earth, but he's also fully human. It's what we call the hypostatic union. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago for our sins, that sacrifice has to be fully God and fully human. Nothing else can atone. Nothing else can pay for sin. Jesus is the only name under heaven in which we can be saved. This is why the virgin conception is of massive significance. Every other religion is a false religion because these are humans and these are false gods and they do not have the substance to pay for what needs to be paid for. Only Jesus Christ can do that. And in our rebellion against God, the judgment that is in Malachi falls and rests on each of us. Why do we go to heaven? Why does anybody go to heaven? It's not because we're really nice and we smile all the time and we don't yell at the phone operator. We don't cut people off when we drive and we're just going to add all those things up and at the end of the day, Jesus will say, the scales, when you save that kitty from the tree, that just tipped the scales and please, please come into my kingdom. No, Everything we do is utterly wretched before a holy, perfect God. And we all deserve hell. And we will all go there. And God would be just to do so. He would be good to send us there. But he's given us a way out. But he's giving us a way out through his son, the God-man, Jesus Christ. The Savior, through his genealogy, shows that everybody is included in this story. What have you done? Where do you come from? People say to me, you don't know what I've done. God could never forgive me. Yes, he can. Yes, he can. I always have that Backstreet Boys song in my head when I think it's Someone help me out here. You know what I'm talking about. Who you are. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you're from. As long as you love me. That is not Christianity. That is silly teenage love. With very little substance. That's not what God is saying to us in the day of judgment. God isn't saying to us, I don't care who you are. I don't care where you're from, as long as you love me. No. I do care where you're from. I do care what you've done. And your love for me does not get you to heaven. You need your sins paid for, completely wiped out. That debt needs to be paid in full. And you've done nothing but sin. Imagine committing every Canadian crime. All of it. 
If we had the death penalty, I'm sure that's what it would cost. We have done that. We've sinned against a perfect, just, and loving God who's done nothing but bless us and we spit in His face. And Jesus Christ wipes it off and says, forgive them for they know not what they do. In fact, I'm going to pay for them. I'm going to pay for that. I will take their sin upon myself and kill it. And for those who place their faith in me, they have a new life. There's a new birth. You are a new creation. And the things that you formerly craved and lusted after, your mind is changed and you desire the things of God to please Him. To make Him known. To love Him. And the Christian life is a response to what He's done for us. We rest in the fact that he has done it all. And we believe in Jesus. They named him Emmanuel. God with us. If you are a believer, God is with you. He is with you in your depression. He is with you in your sleepless nights. He is with you in your addictions. He is with you in your struggles with your mental health. He is with you in your loneliness. He is with you when you don't know how you're going to make ends meet. He is with you. It is in his name, Emmanuel, God with us. That is a promise. It doesn't matter what you feel about that. It is a fact. And the courage and the strength and the joy that we should have knowing that God is with us should be second to none. You just think of a little kid. I think of my little girls. They're going to a situation that is kind of scary. Like a grocery store. But as long as I'm with them, they don't ask, like, Dad, how are you going to do No, as long as you're with me, you just want to hold my hand, they want to be close, I'm with them. How much more, then, is God with us? Infinite. With an infinite kingdom. He's with us. Emmanuel. That's how Matthew opened. By this, the, this miraculous birth, this amazing Savior, Emmanuel, God with us. And that's how Matthew ends the last verse in his book. Chapter 28, verse 20. Call this the Great Commission. If you're a Christian, this is your job description. The Great Commissioner has given you a task. And he will ask of you, where are your disciples? The Great Commission is this. Go throughout all the world. Go to every nation. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. All of it. And be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm with you when you choose to go to a foreign country. When God sends you to a foreign country with no friends and no support to preach to a people who have no language, I will be with you there. I will be with you when you're talking to your friend who you've had for 25 years and you've never shared your faith. But now is the time. I will be with you then. 
I will be with you when you lose your job for talking about Jesus Christ and standing up for the truths of the Bible. I will be with you. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There is no greater promise in the gospel than God being with us. Yes, we get our sins forgiven. Yes, we have joy. Yes, we have new community. God is giving us himself. I am with you always. There's no higher prize. There's no higher goal. This is what we want the world to know. That God is with us. That he's alive. He's a historical figure. And his kingdom has no end. And we invite people into that story. For his glory. And for our joy. Amen. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I ask that through the many things that were said, that you would just bring a delight of who you are. That you'd bring to mind the things that we need to know. And that we would cherish, we would cherish Jesus. That he would be our supreme satisfaction. And that we would want to share this. And Father, for those who do not know you, who maybe have questions, who are skeptical, God, would you enlighten them? Would you give them open eyes, open hearts, and open ears to hear your glorious good news that you've given us the gift of yourself and that we will dine with you in your kingdom and have a room in your home with perfect joy and perfect worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.